0: By Asaph or by his um, descendants, who were a psalmist singing group in the temple. Um, Second Chronicles thirty-five fifteen tells us that this group persisted even until after um, after the deportation to Babylon. And so, again, as we look at now our third psalm and the third book of the psalms, the compiler of the psalms broke the book into five books probably modeling the five books of Moses and the overwhelming theme of book three is lament is pouring one's heart out to God probably in correspondence to the decline of the Davidic monarchy the splitting of the kingdom of Israel into Israel in the north and Judah in the south and so this psalm proves no exception differently though than our last two psalms and this one is a corporate lament This is the people of God crying out for restoration, crying out for, I think we'll see, revival. So let's read Psalm 80. Of Asaph a psalm, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned among the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You've cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along this way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed upon it. Turn again, O God of hosts! Look down from heaven and see; have regard for this vine, the stout that your right hand planted, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire; they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life. we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now if you were listening, you notice the threefold repetition of a chorus, nearly identical in all of its occurrences, verse 3, verse 7, and verse 19, which sort of become the division markers. There's a fourth chorus, which our English translations don't make so clear but if you flip over your notes you'll see the division it's in verse 14 that word for restore means to turn about and so in the three verses in in the three choruses rather in verses 3 7 and 19 they're calling upon God to turn about Israel in verse 14 they're calling on God to turn himself about towards them so, that's the way we're going to look at this psalm, four verses in chorus. And this is a pretty straightforward hymn, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Now, a word about the setting. Psalm 80 um, is written, as best as we can tell, just prior to Assyria coming in and gobbling up the 10 northern tribes. In fact, the oldest copies of this text, I'm sure the Greek Septuagint, have the additional psalm title Concerning the Assyrian. It seems to be focused on the northern tribes. You notice the reference to Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh, um, already languishing, already in decline. In fact, we're going to see in a little bit that a word of judgment has already come out from the Lord against the north. And so the... Singers, the psalmists down south in the temple are gathering together and they're crying out to God, crying out to God for a revival, for restoration of of Israel, of the kingdom, a spiritual and national revival that God would move among them. That's sort of the overwhelming theme of this. So it's corporate. This isn't individual. The last two weeks we saw were individual events, but this is the people of God crying out for the people of God. And so let us dive in then looking at the first verse, verses one to three, a corporate plea for deliverance. A corporate plea for deliverance. And, and Asaph, or his sons, jump right in. Give ear. These are imperatives. They're calling upon the Lord in a strong voice. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned among the cherubim, shine forth, before frame, and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. And what I want to pay attention to as we're studying this is how do they reason with God? How do they call upon God? How are we, when we call out for God's mercy, when we call out for God's restoration, how are we to do that? And the first appeal is, is to God as shepherd. God as shepherd. Give Eero, oh, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock they're recognizing that god is first and foremost their leader their king their shepherd and they cry out to him you know this is this is a common biblical theme psalm 24 the lord is my shepherd in ezekiel um, 34 the lord saying he will shepherd his people and we like sheep go astray and he shepherds us and he and he looks after us and so initially they go to this metaphor, Lord, do what you do. You are a shepherd to us, shepherd us. Lord, we've gone astray, shepherd us. And one of the things that I'm very encouraged by in this psalm is the boldness with which the prayer is made. You know, God would have us come before him as sons and daughters. There, there literally are imperatives here, just filling up this first stanza, calling on God to do things, exhorting God to do things on their behalf. And, and despite their decline, despite their sorry state, um, Asaph is, is willing to be bold in this approach to God, calling upon God to act. Um, and specifically what he's calling upon God to act is that God would again display his glory. And there's that word for shine forth. And you sort of put the two together. He calls God the one who sits enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. And what he's drawing to mind is the picture of the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember, the Ark was a gold box. And on top of the gold box were two cherubim made out of gold. In fact, I'll read to you the account of this, this special place, the mercy seat on the Ark. Um, In Exodus 25, verse 17 and following, the Lord says to Moses, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends." The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. They face one another towards the mercy seat, shall face the cherubim. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I give to you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel." So this is God's earthly throne prior to the temple. And I just love it. It's the mercy seat. And so again, he's appealing to God's mercy. You are our shepherd. You who dwell in your special Shekinah presence in the mercy seat. Shine forth. And that shining forth is a reference to when the Lord's glory came down, when the ark was first built in Exodus 40, 34 to 35, As they put the tabernacle together. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So what the psalm is doing is remembering. This is God's special place. This mercy seat. And that when God is sitting on his mercy seat. In the tabernacle glory. Glory shone out so blinding so thick that Moses couldn't even enter and that's what the psalmist is calling out for in a spiritual drought in a time of languishing and going astray of God's people what is needed for all revival is a fresh display of the glory of God it's always what's needed He, he knows that's what's needed he's saying shine out Notice the attention also. For whatever reason, Asaph chooses to focus on the tribes of Rachel. Rachel's two children, Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph get his tribe split in half into a frame in Manasseh. And those are the tribes that are mentioned. The Rachel tribes. And so he's calling out for God to shine forth in glory as a way of of saving his people. I mean we may think that what we need is an army, what we need is is big guns. What we need, first and foremost, is to see the glory of God. And that's not just an Old Testament concept, but turn in your Bibles to Second Corinthians four. Second Corinthians four. If you're here today and you're a Christian, if you're here and you've put your faith in the living Christ, it's only because you've seen his glory according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's so easy when you're reading these psalms to sort of gloss over the language that is given, but it's very specific. He's, he knows what he needs. He's very specific in his prayer for revival. And he, what he needs is this glory from the mercy seat to shine forth. It's what we needed. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6. to 6. Paul writes, even if our gospel is veiled, this is also a reference back to Exodus because when Moses would meet with God, his face would glow from being exposed to the glory and it would creep out the rest of Israel and so they made him wear a veil and so Paul is explaining why this glorious gospel here is so frequently ridiculed and derided. If, it's as if to say, Paul, if, if your gospel is so great, if, if this news is so wonderful, then why do so many people scoff? He says, well, for many people, they have a veil over their face, so they cannot see the glory. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, note what they're blinded from. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, that's what happened God looked into your dark heart and he said let there be light and you saw the glory of Jesus in the gospel you, you saw something wonderful something attractive something beautiful and then you you embraced him by faith you became his child and so what is always needed for revival what's always needed when there's spiritual languishing is a fresh revelation of the glory of God Let's, let's get back now to um, Psalm 80. So that's the first verse. A plea to God as shepherd to rouse himself, to display his glory, to come and save his people. And now we get to the first chorus. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now that word for restore, as I said earlier, literally means, and here's your blank, turn us or return us. Turn us around. Um, And it speaks to the notion that Israel has gone astray. And Israel has, especially the northern kingdoms, really gone astray. They are not faithful to God. And so this song is calling out for God to, through a display of his glory, through a pouring out of his grace from the mercy seat, to turn the hearts of the people of Israel towards him. To restore then is to turn us. This is very similar to what we sang this morning. Create in me a clean heart. Psalm 51, or Psalm 61:11, 11, unite my heart to fear your name. You know, God is sovereign. He can move the hearts of men and women, and he does. And so it is right and good for us to call on him to do that. Um, if, if, if your heart isn't where it needs to be towards God, perhaps you could call it, God, would you work in my heart? Would you turn me towards your truth? Would you unite my heart to fear your name? Would you create me a clean heart? Those are biblical prayers. Those are biblical prayers. So the first part of this course, restore us. And then this notion of may your face shine. Now the Hebrew word here is different from the word used in verse 1. In verse 1, it's this notion of radiance, this blasting, blinding light. Here, it's the same word, and this is borrowed really from the uh, ironic blessing that sometimes we close our service with. It's um, found in number 624. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so here, and the blank is, shine on us means favor. It means favor. It means friendship. And so what we've got then is this save us then. Our final blank means reconciliation with God. Because here's the picture. Here's what the chorus is Depicting Israel is turned away from God, pursuing the Baals and the Ashtaroth and all of the false gods. And here is the Lord. His face is not in favor. In fact, if you look at verse 4, it's in anger. And what is needed is for Israel to turn, be restored to the Lord, and the Lord's angry face to be replaced with a favorable face. And in that context, his people will be saved. This is the picture of Reconciliation. Israel turning to the Lord, the Lord's anger turning away, looking in favor on his people. This is what Paul speaks about in Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. Now for Israel, there's a mixture here of physical salvation and spiritual salvation because as the Mosaic Covenant made it clear, as went the people, as went the nation. If Israel was spiritually faithful, they would be politically and economically prosperous they would dwell secure the crops would grow they'd have children but as Deuteronomy 30 warns if the people were spiritually unfaithful then the Lord would blight them and send the curses of this book upon them and so sure there is absolutely here a picture and a reference to a restoration of the kingdom but the psalmist understands that any real change is going to have to start spiritually it's going to have to start with change of hearts um Steve Lawson, in his commentary, says this. More than a cry for near national resurgence, the psalmist prayed for spiritual revival. This repeated refrain is a frequent prayer for Israel's restoration after suffering a major devastating defeat by the Assyrians. They will be saved or rescued from defeat only if God will shine his grace and power upon them. This is more than a cry for national prosperity, but a request for spiritual revival. And so there there is the chorus. A calling out on God, would you turn your people around? Would you turn your people, bring them back to yourself? Would you look on us with favor? Would your face once again shine upon us with a smile? And in that context, would we be saved? And thus ends the first verse and chorus. Now let's move on to the second verse. The Lord's present anger. The Lord's present anger. Despite the fact that the Lord had been Israel's shepherd... He had dwelt among them, sitting on his mercy seat. Despite the prayer that the Lord would look on them in favor, verse four begins, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Literally, it's will you smoke and smolder against your people's prayers. You have... Fed them the bread of tears, give them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. And what we see here is that sin breaks our fellowship with God. Israel's faithlessness has caused a huge rift in the relationship with the Lord. I don't know if you know that, but our sin can make it so the Lord will not listen to our prayers, and by listen I mean regard. Obviously, the Lord knows all. But sometimes we ask ourselves, does the Lord listen to the prayers of unbelievers? I think the biblical answer is no. He does not regard them unless they're prayers of faith looking to his son. Psalm 86, I'm sorry, 66:18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Or James 4, 3 to 4. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And sadly, Israel had made themselves God's enemy through their adultery, spiritually speaking. And so the psalmist cries out, lamenting over this. Um, notice he doesn't plead that the people have repented, that the people have forsaken their sin. They hadn't. Now, there's a faithful remnant, the people singing this song. But nationally, Israel was unfaithful, and so they're just lamenting over their broken relationship with God, that their prayers are going up and sort of hitting the ceiling. Really the picture is there's this layer of angry smoke separating them and God. As their prayers are going up, God's anger is smoldering against them. It's a terrible picture, and it's a terrible place to be in relationship with God. The other thing we see is that our sin always results in our sorrow and shame. And again, this is nothing the Lord did not promise and predict. In the books of Moses, you can go and read Deuteronomy 30, where the the Lord lays out the blessing and the curse, the promises for faithfulness, the curses for faithlessness. And yet when it comes, it is still dreadful. And because of this, God did not prosper the northern kingdom. They were not protected. Their enemies were trampling over them. They're in decline. And so they feel this shame you have fed us the bread of tears, given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Being fed on tears and hearing the scoffing laughs of your neighbors. All because of their faithlessness. All because of their spiritual apostasy. Which then brings us then to the chorus again. And whatever gets repeated in a psalm is probably very important. And to have this repeated three or four times in this psalm, we should sit up and take note. What is needed is the Lord God to turn about his people. What is needed is the Lord's angry, smoldering face to turn to a face of kindness and friendship and for God's people to be saved. And notice the ordering that that comes in. Um, Because of God's character, because of his holiness, he cannot clear away and wipe away and forgive sins that have not been confessed and repented of as long as israel is embracing their idolatry as long as israel is embracing their spiritual adultery the lord must be angry at them and he will discipline them as a father disciplines his child but the second they offer the sacrifices of god that we sang about today the broken spirit and a contrite heart well the bible says again and again then the lord does receive and the lord does accept and so this chorus knows the right order you need to turn Israel about towards you and then you need to look favorably on them And then we will experience your salvation That's what's needed What gets added here Is the word of hosts And the only difference between verse 7 and verse 3 Is O oh Lord, O oh God of hosts Lord of armies Jehovah Sabaoth And it's just emphasizing God's power Even at this late hour God's power to save and restore the people God is able To do it brings us then to the third verse. The Lord's past mercy. The Lord's past mercy. So he's presently angry, but there was a time in the past where he wasn't. And so the psalmist looks back there in his mind's eye and really recounts um, Israel's history. And so we see Israel as God's planted and cultivated vine. He says, you brought a vine out of Egypt You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Now this metaphor of Israel as a vine is something that really finds its roots back in Genesis 49.22. Where Jacob is prophesying over his sons. And when he gets to his son Joseph, he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. And so again, this is the psalm, you who lead Joseph like a flock, and he jumps into this um, vine metaphor. But there's even a more recent vine metaphor. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 5. What I think is really going on here is this. In Isaiah's time, an oracle of the Lord came pronouncing judgment against the north. And in Isaiah 5... Isaiah uses this metaphor of a vine. And so I think the Asaph is aware of Isaiah 5 and is responding. He's heard the word of judgment. And the people cry out against it. Oh Lord, no, not this. Isaiah 5. Starting in verse 1. this notion of vine really only occurs about five times in the Bible. The Genesis passage, um, Isaiah 5... Psalm 80, Ezekiel 15, and then, as we'll see, Jesus in John 15. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, yet it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, what more shall there to do? What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard, I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that the rain shall not rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness but behold an outcry. And so I believe that The psalmist writing Psalm 80 is is well aware of this announcement of judgment. And using the same metaphor, they're crying out to the Lord. And and basically the reasoning is this. Oh Lord, you, you brought these people up in such a spectacular way out of Egypt. And you planted us here. And you caused us to grow. And under David and Solomon, the kingdom expands. I think that's what's referenced by its shoots going out to the sea and the river. Will you now, oh Lord, will you truly now... Let your people be destroyed. Will you truly now let the enemy devour us? Praying that God will have mercy. Israel was God's planted and cultivated vine, but Isaiah 5 announces that Israel will be the ruined and ravaged vine. And and that's what this psalm is crying out against. the, The judgment that the Lord promises against spiritual unfaithfulness. And I think for this reason is why the chorus here changes in in Psalm 80. Verse 14, um, the first two-thirds of it match up with the other choruses very well. It's only that, at least in the ESV, the King James, I think, translates it consistently. But here, it's a call not for God to turn Israel, but rather for Him to turn. In order for reconciliation to happen, both parties need to turn towards each other. And here, in verse 14... A call for God to turn, to look, and to care. A call for God to turn, to look, and to care. It says, turn again, O Lord of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. And he's calling to mind, Lord, you started something. You did something wonderful. You you brought us out of Egypt. You planted us. You, You... nourished us, exactly what Isaiah 5 says, he built a hedge around it, he did everything they could have needed and they did not produce the fruit that he was looking for and so now the walls are broken down all who pass by pluck its fruit, the boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed upon it. Israel's languishing, an easy prey for other military powers and now with Assyria mounting up to come in and gobble them up they cry out Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven. See. Never guard. Which brings us to the final verse. A prayer and a promise. A prayer and a promise. One final plea, one final prayer, and a promise from on behalf of Israel. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life. We will call upon your name. And so here, we look now for the Lord prayer that he have compassion on his branch or son. The word translated son there is the same word for branch. Same word that was used back in Genesis 49, 22, speaking of Joseph being a branch. And so it's a play on words. And it's also a reference to the fact that when God formed Israel, I mean, when when he sent Jacob and his sons to Egypt, what happened was Egypt became sort of an incubator. And 400 years later, there was the birth of a nation. What went in is as a family and their servants came out, a multi-million group of people. And because of that, Exodus 4.22, when the Lord sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, he says... Say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And so Israel enters into sonship in this exodus, departing from Egypt. It's this special relationship with the Lord. And so again, that's being called upon here as well. Have regard for this vine that your hand planted and for the son whom you've made strong for yourself. And, and speaking about this whole son and then later son of man, it's really easy having the New Testament to look back and say, ah, ah, this is about Jesus. Probably not. At least not without a couple dots in between. Um, the term son of man was Jesus' favorite self designation, but the reason why is it was such an obscure messianic title. Um, Ezekiel, for instance, refers to himself in his own book as son of man uh, 93 times really all there is is until Daniel 7.13 shows up there is no messianic notion of son of man in Daniel 7.13 one appearing like a son of man approaches the ancient of days in the clouds of the sky and that's why I think Jesus chose this title because it is a messianic title but it's a very subtle one Um, and so for anyone reading Psalm 80 I I don't think that they're looking forward to the Messiah Um, I think this is simply we see that the vine in verse 15 is the son The son at your right hand is a play on words. Ben, um, Benjamin means son of my right hand. Ben, like Ben Laden or Ben anything, is son. Hamin, my right hand. He's prayed for Benjamin. Now he's praying that you would strengthen the man at your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong. It's Israel. The reference to son, son of man here is speaking to Israel. Strengthen Israel, Lord, you made us you called us your son. We entered into a covenant and a relationship with you when we left Israel. Don't don't break your covenant, don't forsake your steadfast love, strengthen us. So the prayer is to have compassion on this branch, son, and the promise is that if the Lord will do this, they will remain faithful to the Lord, and they will call upon his name. It says, um, let your hand verse 17. Be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man whom you've made strong, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Because again, the psalmist knows that what the Lord is looking for, first and foremost, is spiritual fidelity, faithfulness, that we would call upon him in our day of trouble and not the other gods of the nations. O Lord, he's saying, if you would just turn us, if you would but strengthen us, if you would but build us up, then we would stay true to you. Then we would be faithful to you. Then we would call upon your name. And then the psalm closes with the final chorus: Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, and let your face shine that we may be saved. And here the addition is, O Lord God's covenant special name, O Yahweh. entered into a covenant with us at Sinai would you turn your people to you would you look upon them in favor and would you save us this is the repetition the chorus of the psalm so what is needed then when when God's people turn away from him is God's glory revealed Is God strengthening is God turning the hearts of his people towards him Him looking on them in favor and in that context salvation occurs now there's an epilogue to this story. Sadly, this prayer goes unanswered. It, the northern kingdom is destroyed. We won't go there now, but if you read Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel comes to Israel and says, sure enough, the Lord burned his vine with fire. Which, which means that we can call out to God in prayer. It doesn't always mean he's going to answer us. Um, in fact, the story is so bad, about the north's apostasy that after Shalmaneser comes in and scoops away the ten northern tribes and all there are left are some stragglers left behind King Josiah Godly King Josiah invites them to come and celebrate the um, Passover in the south with them and according to 2 Chronicles 36 so the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them that, that was how apostate the north was, that even after the Lord's judgment came in and they were taken away, those who remained, rather than fearing, rather than repenting, rather than humbling themselves, when an invitation from the south says, come, come, celebrate the Passover of the Lord with us, they laugh at them. But that's not the final word. Praise the Lord, that's not the final word. Open your Bible to John 15, and this is sort of the, the epilogue, because it's a sad psalm. It's a sad psalm. God's people crying out to him for a revival that never comes, at least not as they wanted it, not as they planned it. Crying out that a destruction and the judgment will be averted that is not averted. And then, hundreds of years later, the Son of Man says these words in John 15 I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. I'm just going to stop right there. Um, Jesus is claiming, and this is sort of this notion of corporate solidarity, that Jesus embodies the history of Israel. That just as Egypt was, Israel was called from Egypt as a son. Hosea says, "Out of Egypt, I called my son." Just as Israel was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And here, Jesus says, "I am the true vine." In case you think God's promise has failed, in case you think the vine is dead, there is a holy root, a stump. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and it withers. The branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish. It will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. And so, what Jesus does is he takes this vine metaphor and he individualizes it. Psalm 80 was this corporate calling out to God for God's corporate people. You remember, God has only worked with one nation in a covenant in history, and that's Israel. Israel entered into a covenant with God at Sinai, no other nation. And so this corporate prayer for the corporate restoration of God's people, Jesus individualizes here, and he says, he's the true vine. And each and every one of us can be grafted in. Each and every one of us can be united to the true vine and bear much fruit. And the same warning that applied in Psalm 80, a faithlessness resulting in burning, is applied here. But the promise is that if we will abide in Christ, and we abide in his word... And we'll bear much fruit. And so that's, I think, a fitting application for us. Um, we can be united to this vine, God's vine, the true vine. We can bear much fruit. And we ab- do that by abiding, remaining in Christ and in his word. Um, this, this is a song for God's people. Psalm 80 is a psalm for God's people of all time, calling out to God when his hand is heavy upon them, calling out to God in a season of faithlessness. But for us, it comes all the way through into the new covenant to abiding in Christ. It's no longer keeping the Mosaic covenant, but the new covenant, which is that we would believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And so that is, I think, God's word for us here this morning. And we're going to transition now to a time of our offering, and then we're going to have a time of communion. If you want to follow along, the, the offering this morning is the text of Psalm 80 put to music.
1: The check. I would ask the ushers to come forward now and we'll do the offertory. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we appreciate your grace and that uh, you cut some vines out and uh, grafted in uh, wild olive shoots. It's uh, We're so thankful that salvation has come to the Gentiles. We pray that uh, these monies would be used um, for the purpose that others, our friends and family who don't know you, uh, that you would shine the light of your gospel into their hearts that they might see the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. share that we may be saved.
0: Now I'm going to prepare for our time of communion, taking the Lord's table. Call the ushers forward. And I just want to link this morning's message with communion. This is a memorial meal; it does not save, but is for those who are saved. And as we sing and as we pray, that God would turn our hearts. If, if you have at some point turned to the Lord and trusted Him, if if He has looked on you with His favor with his fatherly smile, if he's made you his son and daughter, this meal is for you. And if you've never come to know the Lord, if you've never turned to him in faith, um, you, you can do that even now. But if, if you are not reconciled to the Lord, if you're not right with him, we would ask that you would abstain. But all are welcome to this table. All who come by faith, all who come trusting in the Son are welcome to share this memorial meal. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, It is our prayer, Lord, that you would restore us, that you would restore your people, your church, your vine. Lord, we rejoice that we can be united to your vine through Christ, that we can become your people by faith. And Lord, we know that you desire from us the same thing you desired from Israel, faithfulness, fidelity, that our hearts would be towards you. And Lord, we know that this is not a work that we can do on our own, but we require your grace poured out in our hearts, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, that you would create in us a clean heart, that you would cause there to be light so that we could see the glory of the gospel of the Son of God. Grant us faith, grant us eyes that see and ears that hear. Take our hearts of stone and replace it with hearts of flesh, Lord. Let us be a faithful people to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul and 1 Corinthians 11 relates how he received the Lord's um, symbol, sign of communion. He writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Mike, will you pray for the uh, bread?
1: Dear Lord, you obeyed your Father. To remain in him, to remain in his love, you obeyed him, even though that took you to the cross, and a punishment for my sin that you did not Mm. deserve. Father, I'm so glad that you did that. I'm so glad, Jesus, that you followed What an amazing thing it is that you would do on my behalf. I ask that you would allow me to see that as an example for myself, that I should obey in a like manner, so that I may remain in your love. And it's in your precious name that I ask that. Amen. And
0: when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper. We are now going to take the cup. God you offered up your life for us Lord Jesus you shed your blood the blood of the new covenant so that we might be saved you bore the wrath so that we would not have to you were separated from the father so that we might be brought near Lord God help us not to presume upon your grace not to forget what costly thing we were redeemed with not with gold or silver but with the precious blood of your son Jesus said, This is the cup, the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please pass your cups to the aisles. The ushers will take them. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.